just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Guide and lead us as we open this word and see what you would have us to learn in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 144. We'll read the whole psalm again and come start where we left off last week. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hand to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you make account of him? Man is like a to vanity, his days are as the shadow that passes away. Bow your, your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Send your hand from above me, uh, above, rid me and deliver me out of the great waters from the land of the strange children, whose mouth speaks vanity, and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto you, O God, upon the psaltery and upon and an instrument of ten strings. I will sing praises unto you. It is he that gives salvation unto kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaks vanity, and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, and our daughters may be a cornerstones polished after similitude of a, pa of, the, of a palace, that our garners may be full according accorded all manner of store, and that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor and there be no breaking in nor going out, that there should be no complaining in our streets. Happy is the people that in such a case, yea, happy that people whose God is the Lord. All right, we left off a chapter, uh, verse 3 last week. <laughs> uh, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you make, a, make an account of him? I think this is such an interesting statement because it is one that I have thought of many times. What is man that God pays any attention to us? Yeah, we're, we are created in his image. He, he loves us for whatever reason he loves us. And he created us knowing that we were going to be sin, that we were going to sin and, and fall away from him, knowing that many millions or billions or trillions were going to end up in hell because of the rejection of the gift of Jesus. And yet God created us and he pays attention to us. Or as Sharon says so often, what, you know, why would God pay attention to us with all the universe to run? Why would he pay any attention to us? And it's a true statement. Why? Why would he pay any attention to us? And this is the question David's asking. Why, God, do you pay attention to man? Why do you make an account of us? And this is a reckoning. Account means to literally reckon. It's, it's to do the books. You know, to tally the books and make, you know, make an accounting. And God loves us that much that he pays attention to us. He has an individual plan for every human being that has ever lived. An individual plan for every single person that's ever lived. And you know that, in, that is mind-boggling in and of itself. It just shows his great power and his omnipotence and his, and his omnipresence that he can make a plan for every single person. Whether they're his child or not his child, he has a plan. And he knows how he's going to use them. He takes account of us. And this is all man. This isn't just his children. He makes great account of all of this. And then in verse 4, he goes, man is like to vanity, emptiness. <laughs> Men are empty. Is that what vanity is? Vanity is emptiness. Vain, empty, of no worth. And, you know, this is, this is David's assessment of, uh, uh, you know, assessment of man. We're empty, we're worthless. And it's most of our own attitude toward one another. But vanity, when Ecclesiastes, when Solomon said, everything is vanity, it's empty, it's worthless, no value. And this is what David is saying here. Man is empty, valueless, and yet God places value on us. We do not place value on each other very much, but God places a very high value on us. So much so that he's, Jesus came and became in, the God incarnate to die for us so that we could be purchased and redeemed from uh, the sin. Oh, what a price God puts on us. And we really do need to see ourselves the way God sees us. And then who knows what God sees us to say that he, when he says we're so valuable, he's going to die for us. 
and he did. He died for us because we see ourselves as empty. We see ourselves as worthless. Now, sometimes we see ourselves as too, you know, we see ourselves as too important <laughs> uh, and get prideful about it. But, and, but usually then we still see others as worthless. You know, the people who are very proud of themselves, they see each other, other people as not being of any value. But God sees us of some great value. That's the price he placed on us. And it says, his days are as a shadow that passes away. And this shadow is literally the shadow of a sundial as it passes along swiftly across the dial. And he goes, they're as a shadow that passes away. Okay, the sundial moves along. Now, we don't really use sundials in our day and age, but we all are aware of sundials. Okay, we're aware that it's that little part that sticks up and that tracks the sun through a shadow. And he says, our days of man pass away, and especially from God's perspective. God is eternal. Our days are just a short time to him. And this is something even we as human beings get to understand. The older we get, the faster time seems to move along. And through the logic of it, it, it really is true. When you're 10 years old, a year is one-tenth of your life. When you're 50 years old, a year is one-fiftieth of, of your life. It's a very small amount. You get to be 100, and your day, your, an entire year is just one-hundredth of your life. It's not that big a deal. And so it does seem like time moves faster. Not that it does, because we all know each person has 24 hours every day, 60 seconds in every minute, and we all have the same exact amount of time to use. But our perception of the time is that it goes by quick, or quicker in most cases. And he says, your days of man just pass. And you know, this is true for us as we look back over our life and we start looking back at things we did or didn't do. And how many times have we looked back and said, well, I was just doing that. Yes, so no, it was 10 years ago that I did that. But it just seems like it was last month or the, the last year. And, and you kind of look back and you say, how fast is time going? And sometimes we look back and say, God, I want to serve you, but I want to serve you when I have time. And then we realize 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years have gone by, and I'm not serving God. And this is something I've come to, to learn over the years. You know, when you're, when you're in school, you're just so busy being a, you know, a kid or a school. You get into teenage years, and you're busy doing high school and, and sports and getting your life started. You're in your early 20s, and everything's about either college or getting your, getting your professional life for your work life started. Then you get into your 30s or 40s, and you've got a family that's getting started, and you're getting a little bit of responsibility at work, and you don't have time for God. And then you get you know, in your 40s or 50s. Now you're taking care of your, your aging parents, and your kids are getting their job started, and you've got your grandkids, and you're not really having. Then you get into your 40s or 50s, and you're looking, getting ready for retirement, God. I can't, I can't pay attention to you now, God, because I've got to get ready for retirement. Uh, and then you get retired, and I'm not there yet, but everybody I talk to about retire, that's in retirement says they don't have time to do anything. Well, they don't have any energy to do anything, one or the other. And this is why it is very important for us to say, God, I'm going to make time to serve you. Now, yesterday, whatever, it's, it's time to serve you now. Because I can come up with a million excuses at any age not to serve God. And it's uh, just like the song Cats in a Cradle, where the guy is so busy, busy with his kids you know, that he couldn't deal with his kids. And then when he's got time to deal with his kids, they don't want to have anything to do with him. Yeah, I've got things to do with. Job's a hassle, Dad. Just like you said in the beginning, the job's a hassle. I'm busy. Can't, can't uh, do anything with you. And then you hear it from your kids. And it's really just each stage of life. But we do the same thing with God frequently. God, I just don't have time to, to be with you. I'm working 40 hours a week, and then I'm spending time with the kids. And, and God, when, when can I come and serve you? When can I, you know, God, I just don't have time to be a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader or sing in the choir or whatever it is that you're asking me to do, God. I don't have time. I'll do it later when I have more time. When I get my job established, God, I'll have time. And then your kids are in high school demanding more of your time. And then you're getting your promotions and you're getting your own company started or whatever. And it just keeps going on. If we don't make time for God, day passes. Oh, it's a very powerful song. And it really is a powerful song about people not, 
not spending time with their kids, but it could be, like I said, it's probably not the word best song to bring into a spiritual context, but it is the same process. It's still the same process. And, and something else. Was Jesus busy when he was arrested? Because we have to remember, he could have just, what he said, called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free before anybody touched him. Mm -hmm. Well, he chose, he chose to do it. He chose to follow what he said he would do. But all of this is the choices we make in life to serve now. And I say this over and over again, you know, a gazillion years from now, when we're in heaven rejoicing with the Father, whatever pains and suffering we went through in this world are not going to matter to us. It's going to be, oh, you know what? Yeah, there was that time way back when, when there was some, some it was kind of hard, but, but, you know, God blessed me and he gave me these rewards because of it. And, you know, if we remember it. <laughs> but we're going to remember the rewards that, we're going to remember the rewards that came out of it. And here David's saying, you know, man is a vanity. His days just disappear, especially from God's perspective. When, when it says in Peter that a day to the God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, Basically, he's saying time is irrelevant to God. It right. does, because he's eternal, each day is like nothing to him. And if he waits for a thousand years, it's just you know, nothing to him. It, time is nothing to him because he is at the beginning and end of time at the same moment, so it's not a big deal to him. You know, time? What's time? Time is that little thing that they're, they're making a big deal out of on the earth. You know, now, he understands it better than we do, but you, know, but you understand what I'm saying. From God's perspective, Time is totally irrelevant. He's got the whole time, all of time to play with. Well, because he said, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. The right time, the right place. In the fullness of time, the rapture will happen, and we will just disappear, and the world will go into a seven-year period of time of tribulation with, with the Satan. And it's the fullness of time. God says, okay, we're done. We're done with this, and Satan, it's, you now have a little more freedom. And remember, I've said this over and over, freedom, Satan does not have total freedom during the tribulation period. If he did, he would destroy the world. And he can't. He will have, he is a chained adversary with, with boundaries that he can only go as far as God allows him to. And that's the beauty of the book of Job showing us that he can only do what God allows him. Now, sometimes we will go, God, why would you allow him to do the things you allow him to do? And God says, I've got my reasons. If you understood what was going to happen next year, next month, uh, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you know, 100 years from now, because of what you're going through, you'd understand that this is what's best. And I love the picture of the tapestries. You know, from the wrong side of the tapestry, a tapestry or a needlepoint looks like garbage. You know, what are all these knots and hanging pieces of uh, string? And, you know, look at this. This is, this, is, this is awful. And then you flip it over, and there's a beautiful picture that's on the other side, if it's done by an artist anyway that knows what they're doing. But that's what God's weaving for mankind, is this beautiful tapestry that looked at from our side looks like a mess. Looked at from this side, God, uh, why am I not on the bottom of this piece of tapestry? What's, what's going on here? You know, everything is wrong. How, you know, God, have you lost your mind? And God says, just wait. Wait till I flip this over and you see your, your part of this, of this great picture. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind. God has a plan. God has a plan. And our little piece of thread may be the one that just makes that picture stand out, even though... It looks like the dark and worst part of our life. But God says, see this dark piece, this dark strand right here? It, may, it draws the picture out. And we may not like being the dark <laughs> strand on the picture, but God's saying, I have that plan. It's going to be perfect. And because of that, you're going to be blessed because of the rewards for it. Verse 5, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. So here David is calling for God to go after his enemies. God, David loved precatory prayers. Uh, I can't say that I've been a big fan of precatory prayers my, my lifetime. I don't know that I've ever prayed a precatory prayer. And precatory means go, God, go get them. 
David prayed him frequently. But David was a king and he was a ruler of his people. And I think a lot of time he was saying, God, go get my nation's, en my nation's enemies more than he was saying, get my enemies. Because he was the king of the, of the people, so therefore his enemies were Israel's enemies. So I think as, from his position as king, he was saying, God, let's get these enemies. This is something that's important because we as individuals are called to love people and forgive people. But our government is called to protect the innocent and punish the evildoers. And our job is to love and forgive. And so I think in many of David's cases, he was calling God, God, defend your people. I'm the king of your people. So it came out, you know, get rid of my enemies. He's praying a lot of times for his people, bow down from your heaven, God. You know, touch the mountains and they shall smoke. You know, God has power. And this goes back to the picture of, this, of Mount Sinai when God came down with flashes of lightning and fire and smoke rose from the mountain and the people were so scared they told Moses, you go up and talk to dog God. We don't even want to hear him. We'll go hide in our tents while you're, while you're up there talking to him. You, you go get the message from him. And I imagine it would be pretty scary. Yeah, it would be pretty scary to see a mountain, mountain lighting up and, and flashing and smoke and it's, you know, and it's not a volcano <laughs> and you're hearing the voice of God. Oh, what the voice of God you know, m might have sounded like, I have no idea, but it scared the people. But to be in the presence of God, even though he was far up on the mountain, just to feel the reflected presence of God. How many times have I been in worship, and I hope you understand what I'm saying when I say this, but being in worship and God's presence shows up. And you just feel a, just the tiniest bit of his presence. Just the tiniest bit, because I can't imagine what it would be to be in the complete presence of God. But it, but it really is important for us just to be in his presence. The song I can only imagine is a wonderful song about what will it be really like to be in God's presence. And I can picture the first time we're in God's presence in heaven, we're going to be on, flat on our face because we're going to experience God like we've never experienced, no matter how good your experience with God. And I've had a lot of good experiences with God. Okay, I've had a lot of great, wonderful experiences with God where I had just a momentary touch of what which you can imagine heaven to be and know that it is just a little tiny finger of it, not even the real thing, but just the tiniest finger of what it means to be in God's presence and to be in his presence. And here David saying, you know, you make this, your touch on the mountains will smoke them. And I think he's thinking back to Sinai on this one. Cast forth your lightnings and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy my enemies. <laughs> God, you have the perfect ability to do that. You come in and you will scatter the enemy. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered, has been said several times in the scriptures. And God, when he rises up, he is our greatest defender. Mm -hmm. And this is why, you know, the first person I ever heard say it is Chuck Smith, but it's biblical. Let God be your defense. And the more, if, if you want to be your defender, God will let you be your defender and watch you mess it up. But if you want to have a good defense, let God do it. You know, the, the old adage, hires himself as a lawyer or has hired a fool. You know, same thing in any defense that we make. If we're trying to defend ourselves, we are being foolish. Because anytime somebody tries to defend themselves, what is the very first thing people try to, try to say? There must be a lot of guilt there. Look how, look how much they're defending themselves. But just any defense, any defense, when we try to defend ourselves against accusations, the very first thing people are, well, we touched a nerve. We touched a nerve. We must have really hit something. But here we see this whole idea of God's, David saying, deliver me. Destroy my enemies. And then verse 7, send your hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of strange children or aliens. <laughs> uh, and this is kind of a very interesting thing. You know, rid me, separate, separate me, and snatch me away from my enemies. Do you know, this is something that can happen to us if we just turn ourselves over and let God be our defense. He takes us out of the situation, puts us inside him, and we don't feel the situation anymore. 
This is the important thing. God does not deliver us completely out of the problems. He just hides us in him when we turn over our life to him. God, I want you to be in control. Be my defense. And when you do that, he puts you inside him, and he's your shelter. And it's just like anything else. If you are in the middle of a storm in a rickety, dry-rotted or dry rotted wood walls with uh, corrugated uh, metal stuck to it, and you're in a big storm, you're in trouble. You're in a you know, cinder block building that's well constructed in the middle of a storm. You don't worry about the storm. When God lifts us out of our trials and puts us in him, the storm beats on him. And you know what? God has no storm that's going to beat him, beat him up. And we just sit in the storm and kind of smile outside, look at all that storm out there, out those windows, and with no fear. I don't know how I learned this long, as early as I did, but just it's been ingrained in me. Let God be your defense. Now, I don't always let him be my defense. But I know that I should, and I usually get to that point eventually and say, God, let me be my, you know, I want you to be my defense. I would say it would be more like the wrestlers on a tag team. Okay, your turn. <laughs> I, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting overtaken, your turn. Now, that's, that's not quite as good as God being our defense, but it is a closer, closer picture of it. Uh, but, you know, God wants to be our defense. And once you tag him, you've won. But you know, that is really the picture of God. He says, tag me. We'll be the last tag we do in the, in the match, but tag me. And this is what David's saying. You can get rid of my enemies. Deliver me. Lift me out of these waters, which great waters. And, the, and for the Jewish perspective, waters are tribulations. They don't like the sea. They don't like turbulent waters or great waters. They were not a seafaring people. Uh, the sea represented all the, all the bad. So when you see the word sea and great waters, it's usually referring, not every single time, but usually referring to evil and trials. And from the hand of strange children or the aliens, all these people that were coming around him. And anybody was a stranger that wasn't one of God's people, which was just about everybody else other than the Jews. All Gentiles were considered strange people. And then it says in verse 8, whose mouths speak vanity and their right hand is a, and their right hand is a hand of falsehood. Their mouths are speaking empty words. How many people do we know, that are, especially that aren't Christians, but even that can be Christians, that speak empty words? Empty words so often. People speak and speak and speak and speak, and there's, okay, was there anything godly in it? Was there anything edifying in what you said? Was there anything godly in what you said? And... Even like I say, Christians can have that problem. <laughs> you know, that we speak and speak and speak. And then he says, in their right hand is the right hand of falsehoods, lies, deceit. And right hand, we've talked about, right hand is the hand of approval. He says, they approve the falsehoods. And this is something that if you deal with the world, lost world long enough, you'll find out that pretty much they are full of deceit. Even when they are telling you the truth, there's usually something behind, you know, the truth trying to manipulate. Verse 9, I will sing a new song unto you, O Lord, upon the psaltery and the instrument of ten strings. I will sing praises unto you. It is he that gives salvation unto kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the hurtful sword. I will sing a new song unto you. God, I'm going to change the tune that I'm singing. God, I've been speaking with the world. I've been speaking with the lies. I've been speaking with grumbling and griping. God, I'm going to sing a new song, a song of praise unto God. What a change in heart. David says, I'm changing my heart, God. I'm going to sing a new song. And in his case, he says, I'm going to sing it on the psaltery or the harp or the ten strings, some, kind of, some form of guitar, we think, with ten strings. It's a lot of guitar strings, but... You know, could have been a five-string instrument with dual, just like a 12-string guitar or something. But, uh, you know, but he's making music, and he says, I will sing praise unto you. God, I want to sing a new song. I've been, I've been wrapped up in this world. I've been wrapped up in all this negativity and the world's way of thinking. I'm going to sing a new song that praises you. And this is so important because how often do we get to this place where, God, I just need to refocus. You have a plan. 
And I've said this over and over again. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, or all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. When I'm going through hard trials, eventually I'm going to get to God, you have a plan. It's going to be for good. Sometimes I get to it very quickly. Sometimes I have to come to this place where I will sing a new song. <laughs> and that might be, you know, days, weeks, months, years in the case of the one time that I did it. But God, you've got a plan. And say, I'm going to sing a new song. God, you've got a plan. I'm going to rest in your plan. You come to that spot where you, everything, where you consider everything God's plan. That's the only comfort that can be It's truly my only comfort, especially when everything seems to be going wrong, is that, God, you've got a plan. And once I put myself, God, you've got a plan, and I truly believe it, and I do, then it's just, I rest in him. I'm going, all right, God, I don't understand this, that, you know, that you've got a plan and you're going to make it work out. And then I end up at peace. I'm at peace because God has a plan. And I'm resting in his plan. If I'm sitting there struggling, how am I going to get out of this mess? You know, then I'm struggling and I'm trying to defend myself and I'm trying to figure the way out and I'm looking for the path and I'm, you know, and again, we get to this, when you start hearing yourself saying me and I all the time, you need to get yourself right with God because you've got a problem. God, I am going to rest in you because I cannot get out of this and I need you. And we just put ourselves in his hands and say, and then he opens up doors, he reveals things we see with spiritual discernment. And you're right, it is hard, but once you get there, and you really start truly believing that he has a plan for everything? Truly believing it, not just, God, I, I see, you know, you, you say it, I, I believe it, but truly believing it. It is so wonderful just to be able to go, all right. And my favorite saving with God is, God, I don't understand this, but you've got a plan. You are sovereign. You are in control. And once you say that he's in control and truly believe it, in God, you've got a plan, you're going to make things for good, and again, as I've said so often, it is, there's not the little word my in there. All things don't work together for my good. Okay, It works together for good for those who called according to the purpose of God. For good. Not necessarily my good. Okay, When Paul was stoned and beat and, and, and suffered for the gospel's sake, it wasn't for his good. It was for the gospel's sake to be exalted. When I went through the experience that I've told you all where I was under a gout attack for six months. It wasn't for my good. It was for at least the one person that I know that, was tell that told me later on that they were, in they were encouraged by what I went through. And I don't say that to exalt myself. It was just saying it was one of those times where I did things right. And this person happened to mention to me, and it kind of gives me the, an example now to be able to share. There was nothing good about my pain. Nothing for me. But it encouraged somebody else. Was it for good? Yes, it was absolutely for good. And we need to be able to understand that. When I go through hard trials, it's not necessarily for my good. But God will make it for good for the kingdom. And then we will be rewarded for what we have allowed him to do. Or I can sit there and argue and fight with him. You know, God, this is just miserable. And, you know, and he's going, okay, you're losing your rewards. You're losing your rewards. You're losing your rewards. And then... When we finally give in, we'll get whatever reward is left. But he's going to make us give in. Always. God does not take the, the trial away from us until we finally follow through with 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful to provide of a way of escape. And that way of escape is to hide in him. God, I'm, I give up. It's yours. And once we get to that point where we hide in him, oh, the, the peace, the, the, the victories that we see, the blessings that we see, as God takes us, okay, finally, you're here. Let me deliver you. And again, I'm not saying I do things perfectly on this. I make all kinds of mistakes. But I understand it now so much better than I did when I was 20 and 30 years old. I understand to give up and surrender to God. That's the best way to look at it is probably Mm -hmm. Because God's got a plan. And his plan is always the best plan. Even if it makes no sense. The, two years ago, we put the little 
quote up on the board that, that people may or may not remember. God's perfect will is what I would choose if I knew everything. Okay, what God wants to do with me if I really understood everything there was to know is exactly what I would do. So my next best thing, because I will not know the future, I don't know everything, my next best step is, God, I'm going to fully trust you because you know what's best. Okay, God, you want me to be in pain and in traction for the next six months? If that's what you want, then God, I accept that. Don't know why it would be any good, but you might be witnessing to all kinds of nurses and doctors by, by being in traction. You don't know. You know, I pick something really bizarre, but, you know, we don't know what it is that we're lifting up when we just rest in God. When people see us at peace, when the person walk, comes home from, from serving God someplace and their house is burnt down and they've lost their kids and, and their animals are all dead and they've lost everything they own, and they go, okay, God, don't understand this, but you're in control. Same thing Job had to end up coming to at the end of his trial. And this is all coming down to, God, will I rest in you? Faith, rest. God, I, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to rest in you. God, no matter what good comes my way, I'm going to rest in you. God, whatever your plan is for my life, I will rest in you. Paul said, I praise God for the light afflictions that come upon me. And his light afflictions were shipwrecks, beatings, being run out of town, nobody, you know, everybody always trying to kill him. And he called those light afflictions. Why? Because the next verse goes, because of the glory of that is coming. My focus is not on this world. My focus is, God, what are you accomplishing to build your kingdom? What will, God, what will be my benefit a trillion years from now when I've gone through these light afflictions, which I won't even remember in a trillion years, but I will remember the blessings that come because of it, because you will reward me. The power of just surrendering to God so I wonder what Paul got to that. He got that after his, uh, after being struck on the road. Oh yeah, definitely afterwards. Long afterwards. After he'd been beaten and, and stoned and everything. It's a process. All of this is process. It makes you feel a lot, a lot better about things sometimes. When I share the things that I've gone to, it is a process that's taken me 48 years to get to. And I give you my examples. When I was in my 20s or 30s, I didn't have this all together. I made lots of mistakes and, and spent six years trying to make something correct because I didn't just surrender to God and say, this is what I'm going to do, God. It's all process. It's all learning. And what I'm trying mostly to do is encourage people that there is something out there from the biblical perspective and from my practical experience not saying I've got it all together. Paul wasn't trying to say he had it all together. I'm sure there were days when Paul said, you know, these light afflictions, and there were days when he was struggling with his light inflictions and saying, God, I want you to be my rest. I want you to be my protector. Needed to be something he had to come around and do. Verse 11, rid me and deliver me from the hand of the strange children whose mouth speak vanity, and their right hand is the right hand of foolishness. This is a repeat of verse 8. Except in this case, he's saying, rid me and deliver me. Get, you know, snatch me away, set me free from them. Still the people that are speaking vanity and approving of falsehood. And this is the world. The world approves of falsehoods. And the sad thing is, many times Christians approve of falsehood. And, you know, because we're in the flesh. And sometimes we approve of falsehoods when we're saying, God, I just don't trust you to get me out of this problem. That's a falsehood that we're believing. And we need to be very careful about how many lies do we accept. God has truth, Satan throws lies at us. Well, you know what, if you were really a follower of God, none of these bad things would happen to you. Yeah. Lie, lie from Satan, lie from Satan, you know, but the sad thing is there's a lot of Christians who believe that lie. You know, come to Jesus and everything will be be perfect. You'll be in bed of roses and nothing bad will ever happen yes. to you. And that used to be a great big lie in the 70s and 80s that I heard a lot. The problem with what the new The whole prosperity gospel is based on that. Uh, the lie of Satan that if you come to God, everything is going to be good. And Jesus himself said, they hated me, they will hate you. 
and when we are out there in the world, there is so much trials and tribulations that we are going to go through because we're his. We are in the middle of a war. We switch sides in the middle of the war. Okay, picture this. You're in the middle of a battle, and the guy all of a sudden switches uniforms and jumps to the other side. Is he going to be well liked by the, the, the army he left? No. In the middle of this great big war, we leave Satan's army to join God's army. He is not going to be pleased with us switching armies in the middle of the battle. You know, and why would he? You know, we wouldn't be. When we switch, he's going to go after us. And if you're going to, be, if you're going to switch and actually be active in God's army... Yeah. He's going to be even angrier at you. I've said it before. If somebody becomes a Christian, Satan's not happy. If they become a Christian and all they do is sit their butt in a pew and don't do anything for God, he's not going to be that bothered by them. He lost, he lost the, them going to hell, but they're not doing anything against his kingdom. They go in and they start praying. They start witnessing. They start teaching. They start studying God's word and growing they become a bigger and bigger threat to his army and he attacks greater and greater in return. This is what he says, God, deliver me, save me, hide me in you from all these evils, all these evil people. And again, we go back to if I'm hiding in him, I'm protected. I am protected by resting in him. And there is such peace by faith rest in Christ. Just God, God, I'm just a, I'm enjoying this uh, great big tower. Yes, there's a hurricane out there blowing against this tower, but that, that hurricane is not going to blow this tower down. I used to love in Guam sitting in the concrete, uh, the cinder block house, looking out at the rain of the typhoon, of the typhoon okay. coming by. Oh, I, I would have loved it. I love the storm. You know, and you just watch the rain just whipping by, knowing that you are safe in this house. Not like the huts that were down, down by the beach that the natives were living in, but I'm living in a con you know, concrete, a cinder block house that is strong. Didn't even feel the winds blowing against it. And that's what it's like when we rest in God. He's a great, great, great thing that people want. All right, verse 12. After he just said, rid me of all this stuff, he goes, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of the palace, that our garners may be full according to all manner of store, and that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in your, in your. So he's saying our children will be grown up as strong vines. And this is literally just well-formed, well-grown, well-struck. Well you know, but this whole idea that the, they will be strong, and we don't really have as much in the United States as many of the Middle Eastern and everything where they have hedges and stuff where it grows on the walls. And the, in most of Europe, they have hedged, hedged streets and everything. And the hedges are strong and make, and this is what he's talking about. Our sons will be really strong protections for their families and, and they will be strong and be able to withstand the attacks and, and, the, and keep things out. You're talking about hedges, you mean similar to the ones like in Real, real hedges that you know are designed to be fences, but this is what he's talking about: really grown up, really strong. They can withstand. Because if you ever try to go through a hedge that has been old hedge, you can't do it. Well, you get cut. You you eventually make it through. Uh, and if you have a sharp enough sword or, or 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 something, you'll make it through. But but even going through the tropics, and you'd have your your machete cutting your way through. It was not an easy job to cut your way through the jungle vines and, and stuff. No, they, they move through really quick and easy, and it's, very, and it's not easy. And you usually end up getting cut and, and, and stuff. It's not that easy. And it says, our daughters be as cornerstones polished with the similitude of the palace. He's talking about the great big posts that are majestic and polished and beautiful. And he's saying, our sons will be strong, able to withstand it, and our daughters will be stately beauty and, and polished, and, and not just outside beauty, but true, strong beauty. 
and it's a very beautiful picture he's saying it doesn't really sound very pretty to us but he's you know but he's saying our, our sons are going to be strong they're going to be you know that protective wall and our daughters are going to have a stately beauty of the and if you've ever been someplace where you see these beautiful pillars and really make the decorative part of it that's what he's talking about those decorative pillars he's talking about that great strong beauty and our garners or our granaries may be full and basically he's saying god when i rest in you you're going to give us you're going to give us strength you're going to you're going to you're going to fulfill our needs and that whole peace that we have where we learn to be content with much or with little is when we put ourselves in god and say god you've got a plan and i'm just going to rest if i have a lot praise god if I have practically nothing, God's going to meet your needs. He's promised to meet your needs. And so you're going to be fed. You're going to be clothed. You're going to be sheltered. You may not be in the royal palace. Well, you might be. We don't know. You know. One of the greatest promises that God says is that many of his servants will stand before kings. And I have talked to many people that have been missionaries that have, talked, that have stood before prime ministers and kings, and they're really nobodies. In, as far as the world's concerned, but they're ministering for God, and God lifts them up. In many of these countries that people go into to minister, they get recognized because they're doing such great things for the, for the, for the poor people that the government starts saying, uh, I want to know what you're doing. Why are you doing it? And then you get to stand before the king and minister to the king, or the prime minister in our day, or whatever his title might be. And I actually have friends that have done this kind of stuff, that have gone into Europe, started being a missionary there, and ended up being put in front of government officials because of the ministering they're doing to people. People I know. It happens. And this is what he's saying. People are going to stand. Our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, not just, not just full, but variety. Do you know when God blesses us, it is a full blessing with variety in it. And you know, we as human, God knows that we need variety because otherwise we will end up saying, uh, what, have you, what have you done for me lately, God? You, you know, God knows that we need variety in our blessings. He doesn't just say, here's your blessing. You know, Live in this one blessing for the rest of your life because he knows that we won't. So he says, our, our barns, our granaries will be full and all manner of store will be in them. Okay, different blessings. And you know, again, when, I, when you just rest in God, the blessings come. The blessings come, and when you're resting in him, it's pretty easy to see them. And all of a sudden, these things just come. And then you go through the hard, dry spots, the testing. And I love it. It was in, it was in God's Not Dead too, but it was a statement that I'd already known that when she was complaining, she's not hearing God in the middle of the test, and her dad tells her, you're a teacher. You know that the teacher does not speak during the test. God oftentimes does not speak to her in the test. He, he's saying, this is your test. <laughs> you know, now you show me what you have learned. But you know, after the test, he rewards us, and he just engulfs us and says, you passed or you failed. <laughs> Even if we fail, he engulfs us with a, with a hug and brings us back to him. But when we've, when we've passed, he just says, oh, well done. You were a good witness on the stand in uh, the courts of heaven against Satan. And he says, and our sheep, that they bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our street. That's a lot of sheep. <laughs> That's a lot of sheep that David's saying they're going to be blessed with. And our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in, no going out, nobody's breaking into things, no complaining in our streets. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we weren't complaining? How often do we get torn down by the complaining of others? But our complaining can tear us down. It can tear others down. You know, how many of us have been in a really wonderful mood? Everything is going good. And we come across somebody who's doing nothing but complaining and griping. And we walk away from it all and go on, man, I was in such a good mood. And now I'm so miserable listening to all that griping. Now, probably we shouldn't listen to the griping. So often we listen to things we shouldn't listen to. Things that will bring us down, we listen to, to gossip, we listen to complaints, we listen to negative, negative negativity, and then we wonder why we end up in, being in a negative place. But the most important thing about this is 
we are to encourage ourselves and speak to ourselves edifying words as well. Because that is what is so important. God, you are so wonderful. You love me, and I don't understand why you love me, God, but you love me, and you're giving me great blessings. And then this last verse, happy is that people that is in such a case, yea, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. The most important statement on that is God is the Lord, the master, the one I trust in. The one that I say, God, you've got a plan. I'm going to rest in your plan. God, you've got a, you are sovereign. I'm going to rest in you. God, I'm not going to sit here and complain about what you're doing to what you're allowing to come my way because you are Lord. But most of the time, we as human beings have a hard time resting in God. We just feel like, God, I have got to do something. Have you ever been in that place? So many times I have. God, I've got to do something. You know, God, you're just not working fast enough in this situation, and I've, I have got to step in and fix this problem because, God, you just have, I don't know where you went, God. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he's Elijah's, uh, you know, statement against the, the, to the prophets of Baal. Well, maybe he went on vacation. Maybe he went to the bathroom. <laughs> maybe he's asleep. But, you know, how many times do we treat God that same way? God, did you go on vacation? You know, how could you have let this stuff happen to me? You know, God, I don't know where you were. You, you went to the bathroom or something, and, and Satan slipped in while you had your back turned. And we probably won't say it quite that bluntly, but that really is what we're saying when, when we're telling God we've got to do something to fix a problem. Uh, God, yeah, we've, we we're just not moving fast enough, so let me, let me, let me help you out. Yes. Let me help you out, God. I, I don't see the answer to this, but I think this might work, so I'm going to do this. God, you, you know, Abraham was told to leave Ur of Chaldees and leave his family behind. And what did he do? He took his father and his, and his nephew with him. And who knows who else? If he took that much, he took much more than just, just those two because he would have taken their properties and their things. And he got stuck in Haran for 20 years because he was disobedient from the beginning. God, I just, my dad really needs help. I can't just leave him behind. I'm going to do things my way. He didn't really trust God. Trusted him halfway. How many of us trust God halfway? God, I'm going to do what you asked me, but I'm going to do it my way. Or not at all. Yeah. Hey, a lot of times we don't do it at all and we don't go anywhere what he tells us to do. Sometimes we do it our way. And the Bible is full of examples of people doing it their way. And you know, Saul did it. Abraham did it. Uh, uh, Jacob did it. I mean, many of these guys did things halfway or their way. Uh, uh, Uzziah, great king of Israel, and ended up being ended up with leprosy because he decided that he got so proud he was going to be a, you know, do the uh, priest job and offer incense in the holy place because he was so powerful and had done so many good things for God and ended up with leprosy. You know, we can do so much and this is why Paul encourages us that we're to end well, we're to finish well. We need to be so careful and sometimes it is really difficult when we've been with God for a long time and we've done a lot of things right. You know, you get to a place where we've done a lot of things right, and all of a sudden you can start depending upon yourself rather than God and fall flat on your face. And mo many Christians have done this. God, you know, and they haven't really said it out loud, but basically what they're saying is, well, God, I've got it so right. I've got, I've got my whole life put together. I'm going to do this on my own. I don't really need you as much. But it's so important for us. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. When he is your Lord and you're at faith rest with him, you're happy. You're joyful. No matter what comes your way, you go, God, you're in control. I'm resting in you. And the more we do that, the more joy we have, the more peace we have. And then the world looks on us and says, you guys are nuts. How can you, be, how can you have so much joy and peace when all these bad things are happening to you? But by the same token, they're looking at you and saying, I really want what you have. And it opens doors to be able to share with people, you know, oh man, when you, God is your God and he is your Lord and he is in charge of your life and you know that he's in charge of your life, life is so simple. It really is simple when you just give it to him to take care of. And it's not going to be easy. You know, 
uh, you know, even though something's simple to God, it doesn't mean it's easy for us because it is hard. It is hard sometimes to rest in God and just say, God, you're in control. I'm just going to rest because our human nature wants to go and do something. God, I just got to fix this. I don't know what, it, I, don't know what I got to do, but you know, I got to fix it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when Jesus was standing there with Moses and Elijah, I love the way Mark puts it. And Peter said, shall we build tabernacles for you, Moses and Elijah? And then it puts on a tag on. He said this because he didn't know what to say. Yeah. Okay. I have to say something. I don't know what to say, but so I'm just going to say something. And for God's perspective, it would have been better for him to not say anything than to say something that stupid, because as soon as he said it, God said, Moses, Moses and Elijah disappeared, and they went back down the hill. Who knows how long they would have stayed if he hadn't said that. Yeah. But that was Peter. That was the way Peter was. But you know, we so often put our foot in our mouth. We do something that, that is not what God wants. And at the time we do it, we think it's the right thing to say or the right thing to do or the right action to take. And God says, why didn't you pray? Why didn't you consult me? How many times do we protect people who are suffering because we don't want them to suffer, but that suffering may be just what they need to come to God? And this is true. You listen to so many testimonies, and even for ourselves, it is when we hit rock bottom, whatever rock bottom is for us, that we come back to God and say, God, okay, I'm tired of doing things my way. I need your help. My six years of struggling, when I hit what was rock bottom for me, and I finally said, God, I give up and meant it, he delivered me overnight. It went from big problem to no problem. And it is so wonderful when you just say, God, it's yours. And you just, you know, and I had one just recently where the big problem staring at me, it only lasted about a week, but I'm like, God, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? And I'm trying to fix it in my own strength. I'm going, what am I doing? God, I'm just giving it to you. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, there wasn't even a problem here. You know, they're not even a problem. Now, was it, is it absolutely no problem? No, but God is in control, and he's showing me the way that out of this is, is going to be long-term. It took a long time to get there. It's not just going to be turned around overnight. You know, and we need to be able to look to God and say, God, I'm just surrendering to you. Help me see the way out of my problem, and when we totally, truly surrender to him, he'll show us the, the answers to it. Now, we may not like the answers, Okay, we may not like the answers he's showing us, but if we totally turned it over to him, okay, God, don't know how that answer is going to be the right answer, but I allow you to have your way. And this is happy are the people whose God is the Lord. There's such peace when he is our master and our leader. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. Lord, we thank you that you are our deliverer. You are the one that has the answers for what, we are, what we're looking for. And we ask you just to teach us to be able to rest in faith in you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.